Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel, and each week we search the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week, I'm happy to say we have David Smiley on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Pedestrian Modern, Shopping and American Architecture, 1925 to 1956. David, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. I'm glad you're here. So could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, there's a couple of threads. One is um, I spent my formative years in the suburbs. Uh, Long Island, not really being aware that I was anywhere that wasn't utterly normal. And uh, then I kind of disappeared into the city, into college and academia. And then I started teaching again, and I rediscovered the suburbs. But along the way, I'm also trained as an architect and an architectural historian. Um, So um, my first teaching job uh, was in St. Louis at Washington University, the mm-hmm. School of Architecture. And I realized that um, most of my students were more or less from suburbs. And even though I had spent m- most of my own academic career studying cities, uh, most of the students really didn't have much of an idea about urban life. And I decided to get to know their lives rather than having uh, them uh kind of learn about something they didn't know entirely. I wanted to see if architecture uh could under could deal with suburbs. So I started doing studies of projects outside of the outside of St. Louis and some of them in, included uh learning about malls. So I became kind of fascinated and I realized that I knew something about malls from my own my own background, my own formative years. Um uh, so that's Kind of the, the the kind of key background is that I I discovered two things. One is that I was interested in malls, but I was also fascinated with um, American modernist architecture. How did modernism take root in America? How did it how did it get learned by architects? So I was interested in something that was considered very um, resp- respectable and responsible. That is modern architecture, and I was equally interested in something that has a bad reputation, which is buying and selling things. Mm-hmm. Uh, shopping malls having a kind of uh, popular uh, uh, popularity among people who use them, but they didn't rate very highly on the scale of architects. And I was interested in the kind of tension or the kind of, of ignorance on the part of people studying architecture and modern architecture uh, about these places that much of American social life takes place in, and were designed by architects as well, in the early years especially. So um, I kind of started looking at, like, well, why did, where did the mall come from? Mm-hmm. What, what, you know, aside from the question of the first mall, which is a very hard question to answer, but 
but why did they, you know, how did that emerge? What kind of architectural practices and architectural ideas led to the formation of what we now call the shopping mall? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you've anticipated my next question and that is, why did you write the book? And that's, that's, uh, that, that's excellent. Let me ask a related question then. What had been written about the history of shopping malls prior to your book, which I have to say I'm leafing through it now. It's really wonderfully illustrated. So let's give a shout out to the people at the University of Minnesota. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. It looks, it's a brilliant, it really looks good, this book. Um, so what had been written prior to your book? Well, there have been a couple of scholars here and there. Uh, and then there's one uh, major architectural scholar, uh, uh, Richard Longstreth, who uh, teaches at uh, GW University in Washington. And he has written a lot about commercial architecture um, uh, of all sorts, as well as many other kinds of American architecture. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's actually a scholar who wrote a biography of Victor Gruen, a few years before I uh, did my book. And um, so people have been looking at these uh, off and on and uh, looking, usually looking at the shopping center as a kind of discrete, standalone kind of building. Not, uh, and, and my interest was to understand, well, what were the architects thinking and what, what kind of aspirations and ideas did they uh, relate to the rest of architectural practice? So, what you know, very early on, you know, architects architects often specialized and they did shopping centers. But also before that, they were interested in cities. They were interested in urban life. They were interested in, in learning modern architecture and, and all sorts of different ways. And so, my interest was to try to uh, relate the shopping center to the rest of architecture and what the architects thought a shopping center could be and what kinds of things they looked at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let me, let, let, before we go on, let me ask a, a chronological question. I'm a historian, so I love chronologies. Uh, 1925 to 1956, why those temporal parameters? Why that chunk of time? Right. Um, the beginning point of 1925 is a little less precise than I would like. Um, but it's about the time when um, stores, just regular retail stores in in, in many cities, uh, started using um, uh, started thinking about the capacities of large areas of glass. And plate glass had been invented earlier, but it was in the mid twenties that the architects, in particular, started exploring how store design could be dramatically changed through large areas of glass and thinking about the capacity of seeing into a whole, a whole store completely. Mm -hmm. So the mid twenties is when, when that, um, that kind of really entered architectural magazines as a way of thinking about commerce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the end date is a little easy, more fun, a little easier. 1956, was the opening of Victor Gruen's interior, fully interior mall in Southdale, in, outside of uh, Minneapolis. And so, uh, that's a, that, to me, that's both a beginning, an end point and a beginning point. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's the first, quote unquote, first enclosed mall, although there's still some discussion about that. 
but it's it's widely recognized as the as the most important and largest enclosed mall in America. Um, and so that starts another phase, really, of of shopping center design that continues for decades. So I kind of mm-hmm. um, stopped there. The first Gruen's earlier mall of 1954 is also vitally important. Um, but I actually um, kind of decided that the the, the enclosed, the newly enclosed space was a kind of whole new uh, way of thinking about shopping. And even then, it was not yet called a shopping mall. It was still called a shopping center. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the kind of interesting things is that uh, the, shop, the mall at a shopping center usually meant the green space, the, the kind of you know planted green area at the center of a mall. Mm-hmm. So it used the old landscape term uh, of mall that would uh, the mall that would be at the heart of the shopping center. It wasn't until the mid '60s that the word shopping mall um, became the term for a shopping center. That's interesting. When I was growing up in the '60s, and this is in a, a pretty big Midwestern city, I grew up in the suburbs as well. It was we still call it that a shopping center. Yeah, um, certainly. We yeah. Did, yeah. Um, so. Let's begin our discussion of the um, of the book itself, and I think it's important that people understand a key term. Your book happily has a thesis; many books don't, and that is that this is sort of a way in which Americans and American architects were introduced to modernism. So, can you tell us what modernism is? That's a big I, question, I know. But. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a whole literature on just that problem, but yeah. but I, I take it in in a in a kind of kind of uh, received view kind of basic form where where what we call modern practice, modern architecture in America is when architects in mid-century America started using uh, glass and steel and aluminum, aluminum instead of stone, um, let's say, mm-hmm. or when when um, the, the what we call the glass office building or the, the modern house of, of, of glass these started to become the paradigms by which we understood modernism, uh, both in residential design and in office buildings. Um, but also, and this is where it might be a little less understood, is that I also look at how um, the reason the book the book um, deals a lot also with cities is because I take modernism to also deal with what is often called modernist planning or modernist urban design, when things like super blocks and large scale um, urban undertakings became the norm. And so I tried to combine both a, an architectural vocabulary of, of glass and steel with a planning vocabulary in which cities were understood not only as, as kind of rationally planned, which is not something new, but, but were planned through, through large scale Kinds of projects where where a few smaller blocks would be combined to make a much larger block called the super block, mm-hmm. which was a principle of modernist urban design and urban planning, through which we got things in New York, let's say like Lincoln Center, very famous super yeah. block urbanism, mm-hmm. or even before that Rockefeller Center, which while it kept the streets, it was conceived of as a multi-block kind of project, and so most American cities. Uh, have downtowns where they kind of plowed under some streets and made very large projects. Mm-hmm. Not everybody loves them, of course, but that's also part of how 
the, the, the modernist paradigm of cities, uh, as well as architecture, uh, became the, the norm of American city uh, city thinking and, and, and experience. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong here, but uh, uh, in my own limited experience, what, if you do live in a big city, if you go look probably at the city library downtown or the city mm-hmm. hall, it's probably some sort of modernist structure. I know in the city I grew up in, both of them were built yeah. in the 1950s, and they're both strikingly modernist. And there are all kinds of other brick buildings around them, really. But th- these things aren't. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, super blocks go back to the 1920s, where you, you might even have classical buildings that take up several blocks. But it became a kind of uh, really important marker in modernist planning for super blocks to, be, to take up the problems of the contemporary city. You couldn't, you couldn't address, as you mentioned, city halls or large-scale institutions without, you know, taking up a lot of blocks. Yeah. And to me, the shopping center is essentially a kind of super block where, you you know, the individual store or the, or the department store can't really fit in the city grid very well. And so in the suburbs, when they first were developing these, they were essentially super block designs outside the city. Mm-hmm. And they were made to be pedestrian-friendly um, by turning inwards towards a, a, a greenway. And that was neither a suburban principle nor an urban principle, but in my way of thinking, it's a kind of a modernist principle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's that's convincing. That's convincing to me. Yes, I agree with that. So let's actually start talking about the book itself now that you've told us what modernism is and how we can kind of see examples of it. The first chapter talks about um, the way architects envision stores. Could you talk a little bit about that? This is the nineteen twenties, I think. Is that right? You start in the twenties. Yeah, I mean I look at the store design in the twenties and, and into the thirties where. Uh, large planes of glass were were introduced for the for for the first time, and uh, it's interesting because first of all, it was relatively new that you could see into a store completely, and so the salesmen loved it because everything was on display, and the architects loved it because they could they could be modern, they could demonstrate a modernist principle of transparency. Uh, and so, in some ways, the merchants and the architects agreed upon the principles of store design. There were all sorts of rhetorics. Victor Gruen used a lot of discussion about, you know, the store being a stage and the store being a, a huge display case that you could walk into. Um, they, were, they were kind of both, um, they enjoy the principle of total transparency, even though <laughs> more uh, modernists, uh, other modernists, working at the time saw this idea of glass as kind of uh, a, a kind of super rationalism uh, that and one of the uh, architects I look at who's kind of um, you might call him the, the anti-Victor Gruen uh, he, he came from Europe his name was Knud Longberg Holm and he saw glass as a kind of hyper rational super perfect way in which there was no subterfuge you know you, what you see in the store is what you could buy it was a perfect commodity distribution system. So on the one hand, glass could be uh, a kind of spectacle and a theater, but on the other hand, glass could also be a kind of of an unmediated access and, and a kind of knowledge. Like, I see that thing, I know what it is, there's no shenanigans. So there was both sides to that use of glass, both of them implicit in in the modernist interest in, in glass and transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I guess one thing to say, and again, I say this sort of as a historian and one that doesn't know a whole lot about this, but I, I think it's important to remember that stores prior to this, especially in, again, largely rural areas where most Americans lived, they, they were very enclosed spaces and you didn't get to pick out the stuff yourself. So you went to a counter that, and that, said, I want that. Right. And then a shopkeeper yeah. gave it to you. <laughs> yeah. Part of the changes that occurred um, early in the century and into the 20s was the emergence of self-service, as you say. So Piggly Wiggly, a uh, very famous chain in the Midwest, started that. I was one of the sto- chains that said, you can walk around, put your stuff in a basket and check out. Wow. Yeah. But also a lot of um, store design in the 20s <clears throat> Um, was still considered to be primitive. Like there was the goods were not displayed; they were just shoved in, mm-hmm. according to the, the rhetoric of the times. Yeah. The idea of having a beautiful display or a display to draw people in was was uh, um, you know there still was some display, but but it wasn't yet a kind of almost a science. And the 1920s and 30s, you get all sorts of display magazines and studies of store storefront display. And uh, the emergence of what was later called consumer engineering, where displays of the products themselves were designed to be moved off the counters and sold quickly. It was not just about information. Uh, it was about selling things more more um, uh, openly. Right. So the, the, the shift from what you might call dry goods store, yeah. where you kind of go in and someone helps you, versus a store where... Things were on display, and you had choices, and you and you kind of were a kind of independent um, uh, operator in the store. Be- you know, became the norm across the beginning decades of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I even remember when I was a kid. The la- I think the last kind of store to uh, have this sort of self service were uh, hardware stores where I grew up. They, they were sure. they weren't chained yet. You know, there wasn't there wasn't true value, and you literally walked in the store, and there were counters everywhere, and there were people behind the counters. You told them what you wanted, and they got it for you. Those are gone yeah. now. I mean, the, <laughs> yeah. yeah, those are gone because early in, in the in the teens and twenties, places like Woolworths and uh, the first large scale chains entered the downtown areas and and changed that model drastically. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, that's right. So you've already gotten us into the territory of chapter two, and it's called machines for selling. Why is it called machines for selling? It's a very evocative. Uh, um, well, that was the title. Machines for selling was the title of one of the glass companies advertising campaigns where they basically saw the 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 selling of glass for storefronts as enabling uh store owners and store chain owners to think of their of their stores as essentially just producing goods for sale a kind of rapid fire sales mechanism like a machine that could sell things rather than a salesman or rather than personal connections. And so they were trying to sell glass. They were trying to, to sell storefront systems that allowed you to change them according to the sun angle or to design them according to the types of merchandise you were selling, you know, from books to jewelry to bras to whatever. And their idea was, and they had a huge catalog for different, you know, clothing types and different um, sales types. It was um, by the Conier uh, company. And uh, they essentially hired one architect um, to design their whole line. His name was Morris Ketchum, and he became, later became an associate of Victor Gruen. And they worked together for a short time. 
Um, and so Machines for Selling was their catalog. Um, and then a few other companies got on board and also decided to hire architects to redesign their storefront lines in order to give them a, a flashier design, allowing them to get architects to to give identity to uh, their their goods. Pittsburgh Plate Glass did it. Lydia Owens Ford did it. And they were basically trying to um, to use an image of modernism to uh, sell their storefronts. And there was a very strong uh, connection between the manufacturers and the designers. They were, and this was something that emerged in the 20s and 30s in many fields, where the manufacturers realized that um, the goods didn't sell themselves anymore, and that there was competition, and they needed to differentiate themselves. And and modern architects were interested in making connections to industry in order to kind of spread uh, good design or spread better idea what they thought were better ideas of design. And so it was, it was a perfect uh, marriage, and it occurred in many different fields. Mm -hmm. We're still in the 1920s and 1930s. We're still talking about stores that are being redesigned downtown. People still were going downtown, correct? Yeah. Yes, for the most part, I mean, there was a whole campaign, another scholar who's a good friend of mine, uh, who, who wrote a book called Modernizing Main Street, uh, her name is Gabrielle Esperdi, and she um, has looked at the Main Street campaigns that took place in the 1920s and to the 30s, where um, manufacturers were encouraging the, the store designers to upgrade, you know, as part of uh, economic stimulus and um, and and it was more about uh, retrofitting. Um, soon after that, in, in the 30s and into in the early 40s, were some of the campaigns like Machines for Selling, where um, they were asking the architects and the store owners to do even greater changes to their store line. But still, mostly downtown. But some of the renderings in these books, some of the photographs of of hypothetical uh, stores were also in small towns. Mm -hmm. So one gets the idea that um, they knew their market was growing, meaning it was spreading out from the city center. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, one, one question I had is uh, you mentioned this link with industry and materials. And the general question is why when asked to redesign these stores, did the architects think about designing them in a modernist way? And, and my question is, was it the materials and the industries behind them that were pushing them or did it have to do with their training? In other words, did they think, well, obviously it will be modernist because that's what we do or do they think, well, we need to incorporate these materials and therefore right. we'll make them into modernist right. buildings. Yeah. Um, it's a funny thing because they didn't, they don't, in architecture school in the 20s, 30s and 40s, there was very little study of designing a store. It was considered in many ways beneath the dignity of architects mm -hmm. to design stores. It was a big, uh, and I think that there was a huge kind of um, perception and social question around what was a good commission by architects. So an office building or a museum or a very nice house were considered good commissions, whereas a store was a little bit secondary, a little bit, a little bit. So when I use the word pedestrian, I'm also using it in the sense that a store was kind of beneath the dignity of the of the profession, and that had to change, and that did change. So the architects who started doing stores like Ketchum and Gruen, for instance, um, in the late 30s and early 40s, they really 
uh, and even Mars Lapidus, the very famous kind of uh, showman, they were doing stores that were they didn't learn about in school, but there were a lot of jobs out there waiting to be done. The expanding economy of the, of the late 30s into the 40s, there was a lot of store work out there, and they wanted to be modern too. Quite simply, the architects had heard about modernism. They were they saw modernism being done in some kinds of buildings, and they were excited by it. They they were they were in agreement that the world of modern architecture was the the one they wanted to participate in, and they saw that as the future. And but there was no precedent for a store. There was very little, uh, so they took it on, and they kind of created a, a kind of um, you know, they spread the word that, that modernism essentially could be uh, a viable vocabulary for the expression of stores. Mm-hmm. And some of the photographs of the early stores are are um, really amazing because you can sense their fascination with a with a floor to ceiling piece of glass. Right, right. You, you can really see it. I, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but. Um... You can see again. I'm not an architectural historian, nor am I an architect, but I'm a big fan of. Um, you can still see in some of these old, especially shopping centers and 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 and, and coffee shops in some out of the way places of America, how they were playing with these forms, because they have all kinds of features which you don't see in modern buildings: slanted roofs, for example, or yes. you know, I mean, they're yeah. they're very strange. It's sometimes called googie, I think. I don't remember. Yeah, but but that yeah. kind of belittles them a little bit because they're really cool. <laughs> well, I mean, Mar- Morris Lapidus, who went on to do the kind of fame, the hotels in, in Miami that were also quite um, uh, boogie woogie, and 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 he he actually was looked down upon by many in the profession for having too much fun, essentially. Yeah, and, screw those people. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing about commerce and consumption was that it kind of worked both sides of the street. You could have some architects trying to treat it very seriously as a kind of uh, uh, you know the kind of rational circulation of goods. And you had other architects like like Lapidus and and even Bruin who saw the spectacle, who saw the fun, and realized that selling goods was also about selling a good experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there was a kind of that was one of the problems is that the architectural profession in many ways looked down on that capacity of humor and and um, and even subterfuge that. They have presumed that selling goods required. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there was a good tension. You'll see Mars Lapidus, there's, I think there's one or two photos in the book where you can see that they're kind of wacky. Yeah, you know, they are wacky. Like yeah. a, glass in, a huge glass room in the lobby that has this funny shape. Um, and Victor Gruen also did some um, things that were quite uh, theatrical. That was his, his, his realm, which was theater. He himself... Um, Loved the theater, mm-hmm. and um, and then the guy uh, Morris Ketchum, who did the the study for um, uh, Conier, he was much more serious. He was kind of like a professional's professional. He would have none of this humor. Mm-hmm. For him, it was a kind of rational enterprise. Yeah, but you can also see them playing with the materials. And again, I don't know. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But I'm thinking of one. Um, it was obviously designed, I think, in probably the 1950s or 60s, and it was uh, it was originally intended to be a uh, a supermarket and it has a slanted roof. So it's slanted back toward the building. So the front is much taller than the back. And I remember looking at it and it looks like there's a 40 foot pane of glass there. 
You see what I'm saying? It's like the most enormous sure. glass I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> um, super, supermarkets sort of became their own kind of sub-specialty, and they had big panes of glass. And by the 50s, um, when they could really do this, uh, they really explored it, and and, and it became norm, regular and normal for for all sorts of strange shapes to yeah. uh, to be part of the vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. that was very cool. Anyway, that's a, that's a digression. So, um, at some point, uh, we we move away from the city itself, that is the center city, and we move out into the suburbs, and we have to deal with cars and um, and parking and shopping. Could you talk a little bit about that? <clears throat> well, you know, when the the, the jump. For me, was when uh, there needed to be a way when architects and planners and store owners and city managers realized that the car was entering the equation, and they they had to do more than improve the store. They had to they had to start to improve the circulation uh, to get to stores. They had to start to improve parking areas they had to it was like a bigger scale they needed to examine and so um there's a great image in, in the book of a game called park and shop um <laughs> and it's the it's and I, I, it's not in color unfortunately but the it's it's a game that was emerged because some people in allentown pennsylvania invented a parking system where there were eight parking lots in the city and you can get a coupon and park and get your money back after you came back from certain stores. It's something that's pretty common, you know, that we see all over these kind of sure. deals for parking. But it was, you know, some merchants association thought about it. And then somebody in the town, uh, a, a kind of graphic artist for one of the newspapers, made a game out of it, and then he, Milton Bradley bought it, I'm not sure exactly the details, and it became uh, a, a game, you can you can actually buy replicas of the game today. It's called Park and Shop, and, and I have a copy, my kid, I play it with my kids, it's, it's kind of cute. <laughs> and and the, actually, they upgraded it a few years later, so it turned into a, a Park and Shop game involving a mall. Uh-huh. But at any rate, the early version of the early 50s was essentially you would move your car around the board trying to take care of your errands in town at the same time as having all sorts of difficulties. Like you might draw a chance card that said, um, lady driver ahead of you lose 15 minutes or, you know, <laughs> um, you know, parking jam at such and such corner. So there was, it was a, it's a really kind of, um, expression of a perception of what downtown was yeah. as it was becoming impossible. Just when parking was causing these issues, you get the emergence of um, uh, something that had been on the architecture, the minds of architects and planners since the 1930s, but was really coming to a head in many, many smaller cities, which was the car was overwhelming the capacity of downtown to function the way that the downtown was supposed to function. And so after that, you get a lot of studies about how to rearrange downtowns and small cities so that there could be more parking. So you have how to you know, use the back block of inside of a block behind the stores for parking. How could you insert a parking garage behind the buildings? It was as if the, the pieces of the city needed to be rearranged in order for cars to comfortably and easily 
participate in the same, um, uh, you know, kind of buying system, the consumer system. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you know, this revisions took place in, in big cities, but even more in smaller cities and smaller towns. And I think in the book, there's a couple of images of some of the suburban towns where they took all these back lots and they turned them into a parking system. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was the, the, the way in which architects and planners began to realize that the pieces of the city needed to be rearranged and, and that these are the roots of thinking about a new arrangement that would enable cars and their customers to get to stores. So the parking shop was a kind of the first sign of um, a new a new arrangement, I guess would be the best way to put it, a new what we call urban design or a new commercial design that allowed people to get close to the stores still and be able to walk for no less than, you know, three, no more than three or four minutes to get to a store. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But paradoxically, and this is a really clever thing in the book is you say it turns them into pedestrians that before they had parked in front of the shop they wanted to go to and they went in and then they came out right. and that was it. And I even remember this because one of the marks of the transformation you're talking about is you can kind of see it in old movies, but I even remember it from going to small towns in this state I grew up in. They had these diagonal parking spots. Sure. You know, the ones they're talking about, yeah. and then suddenly the they all disappeared. Diagonal, <laughs> yeah, diagonal parking was one of the attempts to get more cars. Yeah, in. and they just all disappeared, and that's it. It's over. Yeah. So, so it turns them into pedestrians. How is that? Well, the idea was you needed to get people close to the stores, and if you couldn't find parking, you had to walk too far. So, pedestrianization, turning it into a process was a way of saying, if we can get people to more easily walk, um, not too far, then they would be able to access the stores. So increasing one of the kind of brainstorms that kind of percolated up was that you had to make zones that were for pedestrians only. Mm -hmm. And so that was a real big break, not just um, organizing to get cars close to the stores, but recognizing that you can get people to enter a zone where there were no cars mm -hmm. and that would make it easier for them to walk, easier for them to, to shop. They would wander a little bit. They would stay a little longer. And so the, 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 the kind of really early little teeny shopping centers like Gruen did one, uh, other people have them where, and they're published in, in not just in architecture magazines. There's one in House Beautiful by Carl Feist, who was a planner and an architect. Um, they essentially made little gardens that would face the stores. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that was the beginning of, uh, of a kind of recognition that you could park and walk for a minute or two, but get to a, a space where there were no cars, because cars were seen as a disturbance. Mm -hmm. Uh, cars were seen as you needed to get away from your car, both because of, uh, you know, the kind of perception of downtown main streets as too congested and too busy or, um, uh, unfriendly. And once, if you, if you entered a pedestrian only zone, you could, in a sense, you could landscape it, put furniture and turn it into a kind of place that one would want to linger. In. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that was the, the big, that was the, the kind of change. So some of the earlier projects, like uh, very famously George Nelson's um, project for Syracuse, where it was called uh, part of a 1940X study that another colleague of mine, Andrew Schenken, um, uh, examined, also with Minnesota Press, um, uh, where he examined, and, and so do I, how they basically decided to close Main Street, and they called it that, um, in order to, in order to um, basically draw people to town. So this was in town. This wasn't just a suburban situation. And then um, uh, there was another example in Rye, New York, that was quite this was done by Mark Ketchum, who I mentioned earlier, and he basically proposed to close Main Street and, and grass it over mm-hmm. so that people could walk in a pleasant atmosphere in a park, basically, and, um, and, and where shopping would become supposedly a pleasure because you didn't have to deal with honking cars and backing up trucks, which the old model of even the you know a, a parking lot, even a good parking lot, you still had kind of a congestion problem. And the idea was here you would park, you would move to a greenway, and it would just be kind of um, a kind of smooth and pleasurable process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. At this point, though, we're moving outside the city. Is that correct? That these are well, it's a kind yeah. of it's taking place in, in both the city and the suburbs, and I think that's that's really important for me. Is that there were proposals in small towns, there were proposals in large cities, um, where in some way the idea of making a pedestrian-only space was the was the key architectural move, and if it could happen in the city, fine. If it needed to build a place outside the city. Is this when we see the first, what, what I would call strip malls? Um, the 1940s? Um, the strip mall was not considered um, one of these because essentially it had no pedestrian zones. Right. Yeah, okay. The strip mall was a problem because it basically was cars and stores only. Yeah. Yeah. It did not solve the, all of the problems. It solved the problem of parking but it didn't solve the problem of making a better shopping environment. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently where I grew up, they were not interested in solving that problem because all the ones I had were strip malls. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the strip mall became the, the, the kind of the easy solution for, um, for stores spreading out from along major avenues from outside of the city. (laughs) And, um, every, all the kind of architects of note who do shopping centers, as well as um, you know, planners and such, they they really dislike the, um, the strip center. I mean, it's as far back as the as soon as the earliest spreading out um, from cities in the 1920s, um, uh, many planners said, you know, this is going to be a disaster. These strip malls are just going to go for miles and miles and miles, and they were absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So the idea of uh, pedestrianization was that. You could have a lot of parking, but the point was that you could walk to an area that was green and planted and have, and have community activities, um, and, and was part of a, um, very different conception of, of the, um, shopping experience. So it was really undertaken by the planners and the architects and the large store owners, mm-hmm. department store owners. And the guys interested in making shopping centers with 50, 60, 70 stores, mm-hmm. they realized that even um, 
that they needed to change the environment in a much more complete way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> after this, you have an interesting chapter uh, about the way these architects who are planning these sort of um, uh, shopping pedestrian zones um, uh, reacted to kind of, I don't know, Cold War discourse or Cold War uh, um, Cold War imperatives. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, there's a really interesting congruence between the, the early shopping centers of the, the around 1950 and some of the designers with um, and the way they were thinking about how to make these places cultural places. There's a congruence with that and the emergence of of um, of, of of Cold War dispersal discourse. So the idea that the central city was a problem because central cities were going to be the targets of, of atomic weapons. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's all sorts of, of, you know, great stories across culture about, about duck and cover and, and, and fallout shelters and all these things. And um, for that, what that did was several things in, in my mind at least in a kind of cultural sort of way. I, I think Cold War, the, the, I think it's very hard to kind of prove um, that, X, that certain, certain ways of doing things um, were caused by this, but I, I call it part of the, the rhetorical package um, that came with the Cold War, which had to do with how to, how to create these suburban places as little urban nodes safely outside the city. The shopping center um, was able, especially by Victor Gruen, he became the kind of um, one of the greats at this. He he kind of um, added the idea that the shopping center would be a refuge in, if the city was bombed. And in addition to that, and this is perhaps a looser fit, but I think still still strong, is that Gruen and others started trying to to show that there was culture at the shopping malls. Or the, excuse me, the shopping centers. They would have art exhibits. They would have um, they they would have competitions for for local artists. And they tried. He tried to portray the shopping center as a kind of quasi public slash cultural space. So that and if you look at the newspapers with, um, from the from the fifties forward. Uh, there's always art shows at shopping centers. There's all sorts of community activities at art shows. And clearly, it's a way to keep bring people and keep people at the mall. I mean, there's clearly a commercial drive behind that. But in the, in the 1950s, when it first began, it was, it was an idea of, in my mind, a kind of replacement city. That the shopping center would, would provide everything you needed in the city, but you wouldn't be in danger because you were no longer in the city. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the shopping center was a kind for a short time was was like this little escape module, and um, and even Morris Ketchum uh, participated in this by uh, he participated in some of the um, studies of dispersal policies that were part of the early fifties of fear of atomic weapons where the federal government was trying to get businesses to relocate to the suburbs. And manufacturing to relocate out of cities because they were worried about 
you know, one bomb would take out an entire industry. And so even Ketchum said um, that uh, uh, the shopping centers were a good idea because of their dispersal function. Mm-hmm. That if, if you moved shopping centers outside the core of the city, like other institutions, they would they would enable daily life to continue in the event of of a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know, I don't. I would. It's. It's. A, I'm kind of. I'm very uh, uh, cautious not to say that the shopping mall was um, wouldn't have wouldn't have happened anyway. Um, but it's interesting how, at that particular moment in the early '50s, when kind of Cold War politics was heating up, that um, a lot of architects and even the store planners themselves really capitalized on the idea that we can create this alternative city outside of the city, a little mm-hmm. urban place that would be safe from from destruction. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the interesting things about your book is it casts modernism in a kind of a new light, at least in terms of the attention. Intentions behind it, because, and, and again, I, I don't. Maybe I, I, this is the wrong word, but it seems as if they were attempting a kind of humanism or to, to humanize the, the shopping experience by providing all of these, um, all of these sort of you know cultural elements and moving people away from cars. Um, yes, yes. The, the the idea was that. Um, and it was not just the shopping center designers, but even in the in the late fifties, uh, well, it, throughout the nineteen fifties, a lot of the architectural modernist architectural groups were trying to reexamine some of their priorities and uh, trying to, uh, as the word you humanize is perfectly good. I mean, many architects use that very term. Even they were worried that modernism was already a bit severe a bit heavy-handed, and uh, a lot of the um, architectural organizations uh, in Europe, especially, but also their American branches, were trying to, to describe uh, um, a more a kind of city of civic discourse and pleasurable interaction and human scales. And so that fit in both with the revaluation of modernism, but that's exactly the kind of language that uh, Ketchum and Gruen and the others were interested in when they described shopping centers. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's odd and to think, a, I'm sorry but it's, it, it, for interrupting, but it's odd to think of modernism as being driven by a kind of, I don't know if this is right again, but a sort of elegiac mode or kind of, um, what is the word, nostalgia almost for, for this shopping experience. Well, what happened was, in, in, uh, for, for many, many reasons, much of which having to do with the war itself, was that after the war, there was an attempt to lose some, in America especially, to lose some of the radical rhetoric and the severity of modernism, of pre-war modernism, and uh, to make it more palatable, to make it um, a more uh, uh, kind of... Um, like I, the, the word they used was a human scaled experience. And so there's a very famous book up from a conference in 1951 where, uh, you know, instead of having a kind of rational diagram of buildings X stories high and, you know, X feet apart, um, they showed pictures of Piazza San Marco uh, with birds, you know, <laughs> as if modern architecture would create these kind of humane spaces. Now, that, that was a kind of rhetorical positioning, but it was a serious attempt to 
you know, changed the attitude about what modern architecture would be. And Gruen was very much aware of it. And, and some of the architects working, um, in Europe looked at Gruen and said, wow, you know, this is really fascinating what some of his shopping centers are doing. They're creating urban nodes where people can interact. So there was a kind of, uh, sympathetic, kind of cross-reading um, between these different subfields in mm-hmm. architecture because they all were kind of congregating around the idea of, of a, what they called human-scaled um, uh, experience where people would join together in community relations and there would be, you know, uh, genuine social interaction. I mean, these were in some ways superficial. In some ways, they were just, you know, wishful thinking but it was it was a kind of a a, a great um, really fascinating moment for that period of, of modernism uh, and the, and the terms that they were trying to use in order to reevaluate what modernism could do. Mm-hmm. How did the architectural community respond? If it's possible to answer such a question, how did the architectural community uh, respond to the first enclosed or interior malls? The architecture community was very mixed. Um, uh, I think they were impressed with the scale of the projects. They could, they were really amazed that such a huge building could be, could be an architectural project, a very complex building. It's not even a single building. So at the same time, they were, you know, they were a little, uh, less, they were not like enthused with the advertising and with the fact that it was all stores. So the architectural media at first, you know, said they were great <laughs> exercises in complex planning, which included site planning and transportation planning and, and you know, space planning. Um, and then, of course, the popular magazines, the life magazines, etc. they just adored these places. I mean, the, 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 they just are ecstatic about the first enclosed mm-hmm. shopping center. <laughs> And, um, you know, the, the, the architectural community realized that it was very big and very important because there were a lot of, there was a lot of money at stake. Um, and that there could be a good way for architects to enter into that. But there was always, um, a kind of double-edged sword there because of the idea of stores and shopping and consumption. Architects in the 50s and 60s were still, were still highly skeptical for the most part. Even though it was bread and butter for a lot of firms, it, it, it was still a kind of, um, you know, a, a side of your office that that was uh, you, you kind of put behind closed doors mm-hmm. uh, or, or hid a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it seems to me that, in a sense, the enclosed mall fulfilled their vision like nothing else before, because it you can't see cars in it. Once you go into it, you're in an, you're in an right. entirely carless space. And I was in a mall just the other day, and believe me, that is where America meets. There were probably ten thousand well, yeah, people in that yeah. mall. <laughs> I mean, there's there's um, a great debate um, among historians, um, most recently and most uh, famously by Elizabeth Cohn, um, whose book uh, uh, is called um, Consumers Republic, I think. Yeah. But you should check on that before we. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And, um, she, she basically says, and many have argued similarly that, um, yes, these places succeeded wonderfully 
but they succeeded in, in a much larger transition in American <clears throat> cultural life where consumption was placed not only at the center, but the only form of social interaction. And that uh, consumption became a kind of de facto public activity, even though it's not public activity. And so um, one of the debates in in architectural as well as regular, uh, I mean, political debate and then historical debate has to do with, quote unquote, the problem of consumption. You know, how much has consumption um, overtaken our lives and, and replaced political interaction, replaced cultural interaction? Um, and some say that the, the shopping mall, by becoming the only place America meets, has replaced the values of civic culture or political debate that were might have existed previously. Such yeah. that yes, there's always been consumption, but now there seems to be only consumption. Right, right. Well, I think might have existed. Those are those are important words. I like the way you phrased that. I know that yeah. when I was when I was yeah. growing up, we um you know, the first enclosed mall was built in Wichita in about nineteen seventy. And I remember going there and being, I was still little, but I remember going there and being amazed. But when I was a teenager, we used to go there and just hang out. And we were not interested in consumption. I got to tell you, we were not. Right. Interested. We were interested in a lot of other things that were not consumption. But anyway, I'm sure that, you know, there's a valid point there. Um, before we close, I want to ask you about one other thing. And this is sort of my hypothesis. So you have uh, this uh, succession of forms, just very simplistically, the storefront and the strip mall or the, the sort of mall, as you describe it, and the interior mall. And now uh, I spend, when I buy something, I go to a big box store. As far as I can tell, no architect is involved in that in any way. Those things are entirely generic. Am I wrong about that? What does the architectural community think about those things? Well, I think that the architectural community has um, withdrawn to um, essentially to do high-end work, number one, you know, the expensive stores. But most of the chains and, and large-scale um, um, big boxes, you know, somewhere there's some architects sitting, you know, in some headquarters um, producing uh, a kind of black book for the standard design for such and such a change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there may even be local architects who administrate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 it's a form of construction that requires some kind of design input, yeah. but not nearly at the level of, of, um, anything other than a kind of stamped out standardized design with X options that can be done in different particular ways. Mm-hmm. So the things we have, you know, there are, you know, if you go to, on the other hand, if you go to some of the more famous things like the, the some of the things coming up in Los Angeles or in many big cities now where they're revamping their downtown to look like almost exterior malls, or you, or where uh, shopping centers are being built, where they're tearing down the old mall and putting in a main street. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's, there's, it's a much more complex landscape. And the, and and I, although I'm not a specialist in, in contemporary retail planning, one thing uh, you, I can say is that the the retail design is a highly complex, highly studied, 
uh, field with all sorts of professionals. Architects are just one among many of the professionals with environmental specialists and, um, and, and consumer specialists and shopping pattern specialists and all sorts of, of quantification, uh, experts and engineers. It's a, it's a, an incredibly, um, uh, huge field mm-hmm. and architects are very much part of that team, but no longer in the, in the dominant role. There are still a firms that do, there are firms that do it, but it's a, it's a very, very, um, it's a big business with a lot of, of input. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned this in the pre-interview just on Sunday, I was at a mall. The way I describe it is it is like an interior mall, but it's turned inside out. Yeah. Which is to say they have taken a place outside Hartford, and it's pretty far outside Hartford, and they have created a main street, and it has cross it has cross streets every block, and it has diagonal parking, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it yeah. has the Gap and uh, William-Sonoma yeah. and all those other things that you find in any mall, except they have storefronts. These sort of pseudo yeah. storefronts. Yeah, yeah. There's there's been um, you know one one thread of this uh, of retail design is essentially um, they call there's a it's a verb they call it mainstreeting. Yeah, they're going to mainstreet that mall, which means that um, either it's completely new where they build a little main street even though it's surrounded by parking, um, or or they take down the mall and they put a main street where the walkway was. Uh, in order to create a kind of experience of what might have been a downtown experience for people actually who may never have even known that experience, yeah. but in fact, there's um, they're, they're they're capitalizing on the idea that that somehow there's a thread of culture that that hears the word Main Street now and 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 somehow is drawn to that. Yeah, um, there's even some of these these new um, Main Streets that have horse carriages and gaslight. Wow. <laughs> I mean, so, it was a completely um, pleasant experience. I'm not going to knock it. You know, it was fine. Sure. Um, sure. I mean, you know, <laughs> within the, the idea that, you know, shopping is part of what we do. Um, one of the problems for retail design is that, um, and, and it's always been a problem is that things change very quickly. So the financing of malls and stores has always been a short-term activity. Mm-hmm. Um, investors in malls and shopping centers have always realized, at least since the 1950s, that you're talking about a 10 to 15-year horizon before change is required. Right. Which is why there's such a problem That's tough. Uh, today called the dead mall. Yeah. And we can't not have a, a little mention of the idea that there's a lot of malls in America, especially now, probably 10% of the malls are empty, boarded up, and um, and just sitting. Yeah, the dead mall. And Everybody knows about the dead mall. Yeah. That's a, a huge economic yeah. question for the retailing future, which no one has uh, – there's no silver bullet because retailing has changed so much with internet and, uh, and, and, and people's expectations have changed such that – People, you know, don't want to spend three hours in a mall. That's why the Main Street has returned. And so there's all sorts of, of changes of foot. And, and that um, has always been the case, but it's, it's clearly um, much more of a, of a problem now because you have investors, you know, of billions of dollars, and, and they're looking for what to do next. Actually, yeah. And, uh, what you, I, what you said was, at least I didn't realize it was very insightful because uh, we had the, the store, we were returning something. The store we went to was in a, uh, the first store we went to was in an enclosed mall. 
And the thing I noticed about that is we, we parked pretty near. We had to walk quite a long time to get to the store. But most importantly, my kids who were with me went nuts. <laughs> I couldn't get them out of the place, right? The next place we went was this uh, um, Main Streeted Mall. We got in and out of there really fast. We just went to one store. So I consider right. that very kid-friendly, <laughs> at least parent-friendly. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, it's, in some ways, there's just a lot of different ways of doing it now. But, um, you know, some people say that the, 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 the age of the great malls is kind of past. There still are some huge malls, um, King of Prussia or Mall of America. Yeah. But those are, if you look carefully at those, they're more entertainment centers than they are shopping centers. Yeah. Um, I've been. To, I went to King of Prussia just to see it. Yeah. Honestly, I, I just mean, wanted to see it because I heard about it. They have department stores and they have stores, but uh, I'd say you know a, a very large percentage of them is kind of like tourist junk. Yeah. Excuse, excuse, sure. Excuse, yeah. Sure. You know, no, no offense to tourism, yeah, right. but but the fact is that it's they're they're they have you know um, uh, entertainment parks and, and and aquariums and museums and they're becoming ironically more entertainment centers, but they're also becoming a lot like the entertainment centers that were thought that downtowns would once be culture. A good culture. Yeah. A kind of culture, if you will. <laughs> yeah. You know, so Americans uh, are nothing you know, if not creative. I'll say that for them. You never can well, tell I'll how tell they're going to use stuff. No. No. Well, another not. thing is, is that we used to live, when I lived in Iowa, there was a big mall outside the city we lived in, this Iowa city. And um, it was pretty far outside the city. And we would, I would go out there in the winter and they had, this is brilliant. They had a big area in the center of the mall, which was just for kids to play in. And I would take my kids there sure. and it was cold. We were going to buy sure. anything. I just went there to play. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, it was a delicate balance. And so the mall owners calculated, like, well, how much real estate would it cost them to get people into the mall? And, then, and, they, and they did the numbers and they figured, okay, you know, especially families, <laughs> you, know, you might buy something, you might spend more time there. I mean, for many years, the idea was, you know, how long does the average family spend in the mall? And you had to get that number up to two and three hours. Yeah, right, right. And and they could you could do that, but now it's harder to do. People are moving quicker. That's why there's more big boxes. Yeah. But they also now have movie theaters. There are some malls and restaurants in one area to get you into the mall. Do you stay in the mall? I mean, it's it's, it's a very complex calculation now. It is, very, it is. Very, very it's nice. kind of an amazing thing. And it's an amazing thing. Well, thank you very much for writing the book. We've taken up a lot of your time. Today, we've been talking with David Smiley about pedestrian modern shopping and American architecture in 1925 to 1956. And I want to give a shout out again, and I'm sure David will agree with me to the uh, University of Minnesota Press because they produced this book, which is very beautiful. And I know they produce a lot of books in architecture that are very beautiful. So hat tip to them. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And so let me say, uh, first of all, well, actually, I have the, the traditional final question. I almost forgot it. The traditional final question on New Books in History is, uh, what are you working on now, David? Well, I'm, I'm still fascinated with um, the, the meanings of pedestrian spaces. And so right now I'm looking at uh, in the 1960s and the 1970s when a lot of small towns uh, closed off their main streets and they pedestrianized uh, their, their downtown cores in an attempt to save themselves in many cases, uh, many of which failed, some of which succeeded. 
uh, others with very mixed results. Uh, so I'm following that theme uh, of what 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 do architects, planners, and policy people think about that pedestrians mm-hmm. pedestrian spaces can do. And what's interesting especially is that has returned, at least in New York City where I live, and many other big cities today in America are once again examining pedestrian spaces mm-hmm. for the, the downtown. So it's something that has a, a new value, even if it's not a new idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I know in Denver, they did something a little bit like that. They put in trolley buses. Yeah, they put in, you know, these, they basically closed Main Street to traffic, although they have buses yeah. that go up and down. Yeah. yeah that, that's a partial closing. That was a popular uh, remedy as well. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I kind of wish I were an architect and architectural historian, as you can tell. So anyway, today we've been talking with David Smiley about pedestrian modern shopping and American architecture in 1925 to 1956. David, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. And let me say to everyone who's listening, thank you also for listening. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope everybody has a great week.